Welcome to episode 136 of The Digital Life, a show about our adventures in the world of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host Dirk Niemeyer. Hello, John. Dirk, are you ready for our last episode of the year? Of course. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the big themes that we encountered on the podcast in 2015 uh, as we wrap up the year and sort of consider uh, uh, all of the great topics and guests that we got to uh, experience. And I wanted to start off with uh, one of the big themes that I noticed. And uh, by the way, I went through all the episodes and all the guests and all the transcripts. And it was interesting because we don't really, we start off the year with a general sense of where we're going, but we don't have an editorial map that's established out more than, say, a couple weeks in advance. So I actually learned a lot about uh, what the things were that we were focusing on because some major themes emerged that I was aware of, but just not uh, uh, cognizant of just how important they were. So so the first one we're going to start off with was uh, 2015 Enterprise UX, you know, became a, a bigger deal. I Enterprise UX madness. Yes, it, it became a bigger deal than it was. It's still not enough of a big deal because Enterprise UX uh, has has a long way to go. And just there's so much enterprise software from having, you know, just one user to a thousand users to 10,000 users. There's so much specialty software that it will be a long time before uh, enterprise UX sort of approximates what we have on the consumer side. But nonetheless, that was a topic that we spoke of quite a bit. Um, in episode 104, we had the pleasure of Kelly Godo uh, joining us uh, for that episode. And she was fresh from the uh, enterprise UX conference put on by Rosenfeld Media. So she talked a little bit about how uh, she was incorporating user experience research into, uh, you know, just working with the enterprise in general and about how uh, that's sort of a culture shift for a lot of these big organizations that are focused on doing one thing very well. But usually that thing is not uh, user experience. So so that's how we started out um, on this theme. And then uh, a few episodes later in, in 113, we talked to your friend, uh, Suzanne Livingston, who is over at IBM working with their, their social software uh, division. She's a, uh, a product manager there. And IBM is really responding to the bring your own device trend and the consumerization of the enterprise. Uh, and it's notable when, when IBM is starting to pay attention to user experience and uh, the consumerization of all this, you know that there's a lot of money to be made there. Uh, and, then, and then our third episode that falls under this theme was episode 127 that I did recently with uh, Uday Gajander, who was... Uh, Gajander. Gajander. I apologize, Uday. Um, anyway, we, we had a good chat about the wicked craft of designing for the enterprise. But as you can see, there's... There's three sort of notable shows that were focused on different aspects, whether it's sort of the research side of things, the social side of things, or, or in Uday's case, uh, you know, designing the software specifically uh, for enterprise users. And, of course, Uday uh, did some of that work here uh, at Involution in previous years. But I'm, 
I thought it was a great uh, arc for the year. And listeners, incidentally, will be collecting each of these themes into a playlist on our SoundCloud um, our SoundCloud instantiations, so you'll be able to to see the main themes and and revisit them with us if if you care to. Dirk, what was uh, I, you've been in enterprise user experience for a decade plus? Yeah. So, it, are you surprised that people are paying attention to this? That there are conferences now that people care about enterprise UX? As usual, John, I'm just surprised it took so long. <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, you know, I've been working in enterprise UX for, for quite a long time now, and uh, it's it's critically important. I mean, you have people using enterprise software. I mean, uh, you, you know, a number of the softwares that I've worked on, uh, they are software that certain operators are using eight hours a day every single day. And when the interface is garbage, when it's hard to use, when it's um, unpleasant, I mean, that's really deteriorating the quality of life for a, a tremendous, tremendous number of people. Um, so it's... Uh, it's really essential to have have good enterprise UX, both from the bottom line productivity standpoint that the bean counters would point to, but also from just the standpoint of humanity and and the folks who are, are sort of forced to toil away on this stuff. So I'm glad to see that finally, you know, the world is is turning towards that. I mean, John, as you well know, uh, one of the reasons that clients cite for working with Involution is that we do enterprise software that feels and acts like consumer software, which is code for uh, easy to use, pleasant, um, right. and, and enjoyable. And it's really how all enterprise software should be. It's, it's, uh, I, I'd go so far as to say it's criminal that it's, it's so bad. Yeah. I mean, is it a sign that the user experience industry is maturing that there's so much more attention being being uh, paid to this now. I mean, is that a sign that that our industry is starting to specialize maybe a little bit? Um, is specialized maybe a little bit? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's it, there's more um, there's sort of more awareness of working in contexts of UX instead of UX as this big amorphous blob. Um, so I think yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, it's a, just an interesting thing to to watch happen, and and there's still a tremendous amount of return on investment that you can get from uh, sort of an initial pass at good user experience in the enterprise. As we well know, you can save users, uh, you know, uh, tens of clicks, right, by just you know having a good information dozens, architecture. Dozens, yeah, we did for Oracle, dozens. So, on the use case. so I mean, and that's all just sort sort of the low hanging fruit that may not be there as much in a you know a, in a consumer software, but in the enterprise, the click stream is so important because you have these complex workflows, yada yada, you you know the uh, the drill. But it's it's there's so much opportunity there now, and you know I'm very pleased to see that that it's becoming a, a more intensive area of practice for the industry. The only thing I will say about this, you know, the, the sort of um, rise of enterprise UX is, you know, it's similar to people say, you know, if you hear if you hear a stock being talked about, like at the hairdresser, don't go buy that stock because it's way too late. Um, I think it's sort of similar here, right? Enterprise UX, now that it's this big thing, now that there's conferences and everyone paying attention, like the opportunities, um, the really choice front forward opportunities are gone. Now it's just you know, it's just it's just mass. It's sort of similar to when um, UX classes and like um, front end engineering classes became a big deal a few years ago with mm -hmm. with Code Academy and um, you know all all those different schools that popped up all around the same time. Um, only a few years later now, like people with those degrees, they're they're near worthless. It's like it, it's it's been proven that like that approach is just not. 
not the right one um, to really train people who are able to come in and um, pre- sort of perform with the right level of experience and execution. Um, I think this is similar, right? So now that this is the masses getting into enterprise UX. So like a lot of the less, the, the, the more interesting things have already been talked about and kind of moved on from. And now it's to the point where it's all pretty generic, pretty straightforward. And so now it's getting the mass appeal because more people can understand it and get their heads around it. So um, it is the rise of enterprise UX on one hand, but on the other hand, it's also a sign that the more interesting things are behind us. Um, and for people who you know, are more, more inventors instead of optimizers, you know, it might be the time to, to put your head into a new space. Right. So the second big theme on the digital life for for 2015 was one that was very near and dear to my heart, which is uh, creative class work, how you go about it, uh, what the the influences are, and how it's changing the American economy. So so lots of things to dig into there. Uh, We started off the year with episode 84 uh, with the question, is leisure dead, exploring time poverty in the digital age, which... I think, you know, it was it was kind of it wasn't a throwaway episode, but it wasn't um, it, it wasn't something that I thought was going to be a, a huge deal. And and for me, that that's one of the episodes where I feel like it really sort of hit the nail on the head in terms of just the struggle that people have with an always on working environment and finding a new culture that embraces both time with, you know, at home with your family, with your friends, but also this uh, always having the sinews connected to to the business um, and always being uh, able to be drawn in at a moment's notice. One one minute you're with your family eating, and the, and the next moment you're on a conference call for some you know fire to put out. So, uh, time poverty, right? So that's the the other side of productivity, uh, and 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 I thought that was a great theme. Uh, and then, of course, in in March every year, there's the annual creative class pilgrimage to Austin, known as South by Southwest, mm-hmm. and that has just you know, grown by leaps and bounds over the year. And and one of the questions we asked in that episode was uh, whether or not that was sort of the, the Big Tent revival of, you know, the religion, uh, the, the place you go to get uh, baptized, as it were, in creative class stuff for the year. So uh, you can check out that episode and see whether you, you think that's the... Uh, uh, the evangelical high point of uh, the creative class. I think it might be more tramp stamp and less baptism, but amen. <laughs> um, uh, episode 103, we talked about creative routines, which is actually a um, uh, some something that, that I explore just as uh, something of interest, which is, you know, how do you engineer creativity? How do you construct your days, your, your hours, your minutes. So you extract sort of the maximum, uh, creative flow out of it. How, you know, when do you work best? What are, what are the methods for doing that? I, um, so, so that was a rich episode and certainly one that, uh, you know, bears further exploration. I think that's a, a big deal going forward. In episode 112, we talked about sort of maybe the, the darker side of all this, uh, uh, creative class work, especially in the software industry, which is you're automating away some jobs for people, right? So we talked about automating America and and some of the 
uh, problems that that causes and how it forces everyone to up-level their skill sets as, you know, uh, computers and robots start to do more of the uh, commodified work. And then in episode 121, we uh, touched a little bit on the idea of the open organization, which is fuel for the new... uh, uh, what do you call it? The the new way work is structured. And we talked about how there are certain companies where ostensibly you can see the salaries of everybody on staff and uh, it's a flat hierarchy and uh, all ideas are valued as, uh, you know, no matter where they come from uh, to encourage innovation. And and I think we both took a slightly cynical viewpoint on on that. But yeah. that's that's certainly a a growing movement uh, in in creative work for the open organization. Uh, And then the last episode, 129, that sort of fits into that theme, uh, we talked about innovation and crowdfunding and the ideas that, uh, you know, if you have a good idea, you have so much leverage now as a creator that that, um, if you have something in uh, sort of a far-flung niche, you can get that funded because you will find all those other people who are interested in that and and then go and uh, uh, receive a little bit of money from each person and all of a sudden you've, you've uh, got a way to earn a living while you explore this uh, innovative area. So all of those, you can see the threads of uh, creative class work and it's it's a fascinating time because we still are really transforming from an industrialized society and and those were you know maybe the four or five themes of the year but they certainly don't end at year's end mm-hmm. dirk as uh, uh i i know that that you have all kinds of creative pursuits and and though each one informs the other uh so so what was your take on uh creative class work in 2015 or any of the themes i just mentioned yeah, you know, the thing that, that is really sticking with me about the the evolution of the creative class is the fact that uh, despite the fact that there's so much attention given to it, despite the fact that there's very progressive, smart people um, sort of doubling down on healthy creative class workplaces, that we're still kind of in the dark ages. And, and I, I say that from the standpoint that we continue to design for – the faceless masses as opposed to design for the individual. And so the example I'll use is something I read this year. I don't think I talked about it on the show. Maybe I did. It was a profile on um, Zappos and founder Tony Shea. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about his um, philosophy. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw up the details so I won't get too detailed with it to avoid making errors. But at the end of the day, it's about um, it, it's using this particular philosophy of evolving to the better workplace. And the optimal type of workplace is, is called teal. They're all colors. And so teal is what Zappos is aspiring to. And as I've, I've researched it more, teal is this very sort of interesting, progressive, liberal-minded, open, like all these good things – system. However, it's not good for many personality types. It's good for very specific personality types mm-hmm. who deal well with ambiguity, who don't need a lot of structure, who are cool with things changing in different ways, who are happy with throwing out sort of all of the old metaphors and, you know, coming up, you know, new terms for the sake of new terms. I mean, among others, right? But so it's to me it's the best example of how 
um, work towards wonderful creative class workplaces today is still in the Stone Age because even the most progressive of companies, even the most lauded of superstar rock star CEOs of trying to push this better agenda continue to winnow people down this little gauntlet that's that's great for some okay for others and shit for for a whole bunch you know the open workplace is another example of that um Scott Barry Kaufman who I follow on Twitter I'd recommend all of you do as well SB Kaufman 1n at Twitter, um, he recently was talking about, I don't know if it's on his podcast or on Twitter, about how now there's good science around the open workplace crushing the productivity of introverts. Mm -hmm. So open workplace is the signifier of modern, progressive, liberal, right way to do it, but it's completely shutting down and screwing up a a, a key portion of of your workforce. Um, So I think that we're going to see good science finally start this year. Maybe this could have been one of my predictions last week. I think we're going to see good science um, this year really starting to push us toward a more holistic workplace, not one that's taking a certain dogma that's good for some and not for others, but something that, that really is thoughtful and balanced to, to help a, a large majority instead of just different fiefdoms. Yeah, that's that's terrific, Dirk. I think, you know, that's going to be something that we explore in, in 2016 for sure. Uh, the last major theme uh, I'm going to touch on today with, with these summaries, uh, and this is not to exclude, you know, all the other great themes that, that we talked about, but, you know, these, these were just three that, that really popped out to me, was once again, you know, our, our discussions about emerging technologies were uh, pretty significant throughout the year. So we started out um, with episode 89 talking about smart cities and the Internet of Things, just as an example of one um, technology that was starting to come to the fore. Um, in episode 92, which was one of my favorites of the year, uh, we talked about designing bio-inspired technologies. So, you know, for instance, coatings that re- represent, you know, the uh, shark skin to repel, you know, water uh, that can be put in, in any sort of uh, hydrophobic uh, area to keep, to keep water off uh, as one example. So, so we discussed, you know, inventions like that, pulling from, from nature and and how biology, you know, really is starting to be, you know, the tech area that's uh, exploding with both uh, ideas and and funding. Uh, so designing bio inspired technology. Um, in episode one fourteen, we we ruminated about how freaking scary it would be if someone was hacking our our connected vehicles, right? Hacking cars. Yeah. Uh, there was that video of uh, 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 a hacker. Uh, group that worked with Wired magazine to uh, demonstrate how that could be done. And, you know, if that's the future, I um, am slightly worried about that. Yeah. But um, that that was a little scary. Um, episode 115, another another good one, the future of food, right? So how do we feed an ever-growing world population, especially when folks have a, a, a taste for meat products, well, you know, there are companies like Impossible Foods who, who are working on making vegetable-based protein seem more like uh, meat. And I had the pleasure of meeting uh, their CEO at, uh, at TedMed, and he gave a, a demo. And, uh, you know, the, 
there have been rave reviews of the of their product, and I, I really can't wait to uh, uh, check it out myself. But but there's another area, the future of food. Uh, in episode 119, I talked with Scott Stropke and Bill Hartman of Essential Design on user experience for robotics. Uh, and then in episode 124, our friends at uh, the Personal Genome Project, uh, Madeline Ball, came on the show to talk about Open Humans, which, as you know, is that uh, uh, database for scientific research that is open to research scientists so long as they return data to the people who are participating and to the main Open Humans database. Yeah. Um, and then finally... Uh, in episode 125, we talked to our old friend, Scott Sullivan, who is uh, uh, doing an awful lot of work in the wearables department. Uh, in particular, he's working on his own uh, smartwatch and, uh, and writing a book on wearables for O'Reilly Media. So uh, Scott's really, really killing it uh, in the wearables area. But, you know, just another example of an emerging technology interview on the show and I got to say, we're still we're still sort of right on the like we're watching the water recede on uh, emerging technologies and waiting for the wave to come in. I think I mean, all of these, you know, from robotics to food, from genomics to wearables, they're all still in the early adopter phases. And it's a lot of fun to watch uh, uh, these these things start to take shape because, you know, I was I was in college when the Internet was really sort of. Uh, uh, beginning to form. Uh, and so I had it from, from that academic perspective and I didn't really have the industry perspective, um, uh, the way, the way I do currently. So while it was interesting to see the emerging tech of the time, the, the internet, uh, come to fruition while I was at, you know, Boston university and, uh, you know, sitting at my X terminal and looking at, uh, the mosaic browser and wondering what the potential was of this, uh, you know, this information that you could suck down from, uh, from the internet, you know, now we're, you know, as a studio involved in, in, in various, uh, areas like genomics and, and really starting to see the amount of effort it takes just to get the stuff off the ground. Uh, even though it's in the early adopter, uh, stage, I, I'd say the, uh, the amount of time and effort and money that goes into this, um, is is uh, astounding. So, Dirk, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about emerging technologies for many years to come, but uh, any thoughts on this early adopter phase, this uh, sort of nascent, uh, you know, it's popping up on the radar, but that's about it. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure exactly where we are. And what I mean by that is let's look at um, smartphones as an analog, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, smartphones, let's, let's take it back to like the Newton, the old Apple, um, personal assistant right. from the early nineties. Right. Yep. So there was this one gadget that a small number of people were, were wild about, but yes. it didn't go anywhere commercially and it just right. kind of sunk. And then you have some years later, um, the Blackberry mm -hmm. comes out, which is sort of the, the first sign of something that really was like the modern smartphone that we mm -hmm. really, we really like. And that was something that was just used by a, a minority of people, by business people. And so there was a time in the early 2000s where most business executives were running around with a BlackBerry. It was, it was like an essential piece of equipment for that sort of minority of, of the population. And now, you know, ever since the iPhone came out, basically, now everybody has a smartphone. And sure. it's become this integrated part 
of our of our lives. What I'm not clear on is are we in the Newton phase of robotics, genomics, or are we in the early BlackBerry phase? Right. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. Don't forget the Palm PDA too. That was uh, that was BlackBerry's uh, competitor, and they uh, they didn't do so well. Yeah, I think um, they didn't make calls, right? Or at least in the early days, they didn't. No, no, that they did have the the stylus and the funky gestures to get your uh, yeah. letters into the into the palm, which uh, you know was basically like learning hieroglyphs in order yeah, to uh, to get a single single letter in there. And uh, I loved it anyway, <laughs> but but it, it wasn't very useful. No, it wasn't. I never took to it. My boss got me one once, and it didn't. It probably wasn't used enough to justify the cost but but i do think it's an interesting question to say what what stage are we really in and i suspect we're in the newton stage i gotta tell you i think that the certainly at the consumer level the the power and um utility of the things that we have access to down the path of emerging tech is i think relatively trivial so I, i think you know, for the equivalent to like the iPhone, I mean, what does that look like? I don't know enough about the science to maybe articulate it properly, but I think it looks way different than than what we're dealing with today. Yeah, yeah definitely a, a sort of first iteration kind of environment. So listeners, you can uh, check out all of these different themes, the emerging technologies, uh, uh, creative class work, um, and Enterprise UX as uh, individual playlists, which we'll post to SoundCloud and to thedigitallife.com. Uh, remember, if uh, you're interested in anything we're talking about here today, you can go to The Digital Life. That's just one L in The Digital Life. Check out the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Or email me, Dirk, at GoInvo.com. So that's it for episode 136 of The Digital Life and for our episodes in 2015. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next year. Next year.